Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Donors Trust. We'll hear more about that in a little bit. So I got to say, I this is a very heady episode for me. Last week's episode, or the last episode with Tom Soul, was a big deal. I was nervous about it. Um, I was excited about it. But this is a different kind of nervousness and excitement. I kind of feel like the dude who kept insisting that he had a super hot Canadian girlfriend and no one believed him. And then she actually showed up at the prom. <laughs> <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, our, our, our guest today is none other than the fair Jessica, uh, my, my wife of not quite, but almost two decades now. And, um, it feels like it. No, 18 years? Something like that. Yeah, 18 years. 17, 18 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jessica, welcome to The Remnant. <laughs> Thank you, JG. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, so that's the first uh, glossary thing is that Jess and I often call each other JG. Um, and although I usually refer to Jess as JG Prime because um, she's usually calling the shots. Anyway, so I've been trying to get you on here for a very long time and you've always declined. Why didn't you want to come on? Well, I just... Don't think that people that tune in to listen to, you know, Tom Soule and Tyler Cowen, I don't think I have much to say to these people. But maybe, you know, I, I my secret theory is that, of course, you've heard this, that you want me to come on so we can talk about you for 40 minutes. <laughs> well, I, it's probably true. I, I did want to get around to, you know, how awesome it is to be married to me. But we can, we can save that for later. Um, first let's, uh, I mean, it's a weird thing to say, but in some ways you need no introduction because I've been writing about you and referencing you for a very long time. Um, but you grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. I did. I was born, um, in Fairbanks, Alaska and I left for college and, um, never looked back in a serious way. It's a wonderful place, but not for everybody. Right. Right. I came to Washington the way so many Washingtonians do, as an intern on the Hill, and um, thought, you know, I discovered true intellectuals. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, and I worked on the Hill for a while. Went to grad school at Johns Hopkins. Um, yeah. What you what What you get your uh, master's in? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like that. Well, I I'm dating myself. I was in Soviet studies. But then the Soviet Union ended after my first semester. So I went to American foreign policy, but I still had to learn Russian, which was a real pain. But I made it through. Natasha Symes was my professor, um, Dimitri Symes. I wife. think now ex-wife. Oh, really? Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. It's yeah. Anyway, really tough. Um, and then I started working, you know, kind of more writing style. I didn't feel like I, try, I did some interviewing for foreign policy and I could just tell I was not cut out for that. So your fir I thought your first job job wasn't just an internship. You worked for Frank Murkowski. Was it just an internship? For I was an intern for a summer and then I then I got a real job with him. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I started out answering his phones and then eventually worked on the foreign relations committee for yeah. him. So uh, and you had a bit of a run in with uh, one Senator Al D'Amato. <laughs> Come on, we're we're flushing out. We're we're pulling back the curtain here a little bit. Um, the well, New York Post. Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, I um I was stupid. I I, I migrated to Frank's press office, and he. This and, is Frank Murkowski, the father of Lisa Murkowski, the current senator. That's right. And he, it was back, you know, when the Soviet Union was breaking up, 
and Damata was organizing a trip to one of the Baltic states, the one where the Soviets were amassing their tanks around. Um, I can't remember which one, Latvia, Lithuania, one of them. And the New York Post called our office and I talked to the New York Post reporter and said that um, Frank wasn't going to go on the trip, which he had already decided because he thought <laughs> that it was too provocative. And, of course, they went with that. Their headline was, you know, D'Amato's going on this trip. I'll kick him in the Baltics. <laughs> um, and anyway, um, D'Amato cornered my boss on the floor that night. And to his credit, Murkowski didn't fire me. Mm -hmm. But D'Amato did not take those things lightly. Yeah. Yeah. And from – I'm trying to remember the chronology here. From Capitol Hill, graduate school, next stop, the hotline? I did work at the hotline with one Chuck Todd. Um, Chuck was like skipping school at GW back then. He was 19, so obnoxious, but brilliant. You know, I mean, just knew every house race in the country. I don't think he ever actually got the degree from GW. He did not finish? Yeah, maybe not. Because yeah. he was, I mean. He Neither did my mom. She went to GW too. And she finally admitted to me a month ago or two months did ago. Did you really? That she actually never got the degree. <laughs> <laughs> the Harvard of safety school. That's right, as, as Dan Foster calls it. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I did. I worked that for a while, which was brutal. I am mean, those hours, that's a sweatshop. For people who don't know, this was before this thing called internet. <laughs> and the hotline was the most coveted, expensive property in Washington, where it was usually delivered by fax. Yes, always, um, yeah. and um, they, and it was basically just a clip service of what was in. It was like a digest of what was going on. It was in a news, the news aggregator. Yeah, news. I mean, it, and, that's ways, right. A news aggregator. Uh, a precursor to a lot of those. A lot of websites. Right. Um, and we covered all the political news. Um, and if you got your quote on a TV show from the hot into the hotline, yeah, it's considered a it was huge a big deal. deal. It's yeah. a bunch of little kids making these judgments, but it was a big deal. <laughs> And it was a great job. I mean, the people that worked there were – I realized that I wasn't really working with intellectuals on the Hill. They weren't intellectuals, but they were really super smart people um, like – and interesting people like Chuck Todd. And then I went back to grad school and then I started uh, – I worked for um, a Bill Crystal subsidiary. I was – Present at the creation of the Weekly Standard. Yeah, I wanted to get into a little bit about this. So, this is this is uh, mid nineteen nineties. Yes, right before I met you. Yeah. Um, so you knew one John Podhoritz back when he was a bachelor around town and uh, and a muckety muck at the then nascent. Embryonic Weekly Standard. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he, he gave you attitude about being from Alaska, did he not? <laughs> well, you know, he was constantly referencing this. We would go to – I'd see him, you know, when I sort of got to know him, I would see him at parties and he would do this like, oh, don't you have a hundred words for snow or for cold <laughs> or something? And I was like, well, John, you're from New York. Do you guys – don't you have a hundred words for homicide? You know, I mean, it's like <laughs> – why <laughs> why do you keep talking about this? And John, you know, is is brilliant. And I really like him and he was like, "You know, listen. My my story is a very normal Washington story and right. yours is more different." And I thought, "Wow, that's 
sort of true. My parents aren't, you know, Norman Puttarts and Midge Decker, but yeah. But I mean, this is a point that we've talked about a lot: is that because you're from Fairbanks, you kind of think I'm exotic, or my background's exotic in some way. When I'm I, Pod. And I don't consider each other ex- – I mean, I consider Pod exotic, but for other reasons <laughs> entirely. Um, but like Upper West Side, read a lot of newspapers and books, sort of, you know, I mean, as I say, call myself all the time, pseudo-intellectual demi-Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I don't consider a lot of these people exotic. You're you're the unicorn, right? I mean, you're from, from Fairbanks, Alaska. You never went to – so do I have this right? You never woke up in the morning – or came home from school, except in the dark. Well, no, that was only that was for a couple months in the winter. That's uh-huh. true. Around the winter solstice, probably you know November, December, January, part of February, possibly part of October. Yeah, you would um, wake up. It would be dark. The sun would come up for a couple hours. Uh, you were always in school, and then by the time you were leaving, if you had basketball practice, it was definitely dark. If you just left normally after school, it was there's a there's a kind of twilight. Um, it, it's, it was brutal, and, and the, the the light was much worse than the the cold. We'll come back to career stuff in a second, but I want to stay on Alaska for a second. So you're one of nine brothers and sisters. Yes, yes, you, six. You number were number six, six right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I believe is a board character, six of nine, and uh, Seven of nine. <laughs> there had to be a six. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Uh, See, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, and for the most part, you were talking about how the light is – the lack of light is worse than the darkness. It also seems to affect women differently, right? Like, Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, their seasonal affective disorder is real and it can be acute up there. Yeah. I mean, the darkness is just – you know, and when I was a kid, it was just what I knew. Um, so I didn't have that. My mom – Suffered from that some, but um, if I tried to live there now, I don't think I would make it. Yeah, yeah, for real. Because basically, all the girls but one left the state, <laughs> yeah. and all the boys but one stayed. stayed. Yeah, right. And is it because, in part, the seasonal thing, but also in part because, for the most part, the girls are less enamored of killing things. I think the second very much so. Yeah. I think. Um, well, there's also a kind of – my father went there because he was looking for a frontier and really had very little tolerance of government and you know, telling him what to do and when to do it. And my brothers were all like that, but my brothers probably more so. Yeah. I mean they just couldn't survive in a city. They wouldn't like it. They wouldn't want to do it. And also there's the killing things and fishing for things in the summer. They enjoy doing that stuff. That is their only form of recreation, I would say. Yeah. I mean, you don't hate fishing. No, no, no. I love it. I mean, I caught a 84-pound halibut once Yeah. Um, in Valdez. And, Didn't uh, Polly catch like a record, like almost 300-pound one or something like yeah, that? Yeah. I'm not I'm not sure about that. But I, I caught a, an 84-pound fish they had to shoot Yeah. when we got it on board. It was a big fish. Um, but for a halibut, yeah, not yeah. Not huge at all. I mean, I, I loved your short story. They shoot halibut, don't they? <laughs> um, uh, so um, listeners of this podcast have heard the story about your dad a little bit, but the, the long and short of it is literally swam the Danube to escape the communists, spent a year in a refugee camp, moved Germany, yeah. in Germany, 
I thought it was Austria. Oh, no, you cross the border into Austria. Get to Austria first. Right. Yeah, that's what's on the other side. And then, um, thank you. And uh, <laughs> um, uh, then there's the harrowing story of him coming over on the boat. On a UN boat. Yeah, a refugee yeah. boat. So the way the story was told to me was that he- Trump w- would not let my dad in the country. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, like Slovakia is an asshole country. <laughs> anyway, so- um, the story, just in case there are new listeners, um, uh, so the way I heard it was I was on a fishing trip with your brothers and some other people, and the subject of seasickness came up. You know, we're on this boat, water's calm, whatever, but seasickness somehow came up. And your brother Danny says, well, yeah, you know, but dad doesn't get seasick. And I was like, and he said in this weird, like, of course I know this kind of thing. And I was like, what do you mean he, does, he just doesn't get seasick? He goes, you know the story, right? And... And I'm like, no. And he says, um, and he tells me this story about how your dad was hired as essentially sort of a security guard, stevedore guy on a refugee ship. That way he booked his pa- worked his passage across the North Atlantic. They got into this absolutely crazy ass storm where like sort of, um, you know, perfect storm, kind of crazy, big, serious, nasty storm. The captain of the boat knew that you weren't supposed that 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 you needed to get everybody as far below decks as possible and in one place. So they put them in the cargo hold or the the ballroom or whatever it was and or the cafeteria. And, and then he s- said to your dad, okay, you have to he put your dad in charge of making sure, because he knew that people, when they get that seasick in closed quarters, they're going to first throw up all over the place and then they're going to panic for oxygen and they're going to try to race up to the deck. And it was your dad's job to be literally chained or tied to the railing with a billy club standing at the top of the stairs. And so when the panic, panic passengers come up like the army of the dead and, and Game of Thrones, sorry. And, uh, his job was to either kick him in the chest or crack him over the head and push them back down the stairs to save his life. And he spent like eight hours on the boat deck being thrown over and climbing back up on, which is just kind of badass. So anyway, <laughs> you know, you know, I like to talk about your dad. Came to the United States. When you were in Colorado, met uh, your lovely mom, Donna, at at Colorado State. That's right. Yeah. Transferred to the University of Chicago, where he got a master's from Milton Friedman. That's right. Not gonna... I, it drives me crazy, you know, because Tom Sowell was on last week. I think they were in at Chicago at the same time. Oh, no kidding. And, I mean, not to traffic in stereotypes about the University of Chicago in the 1950s, but my hunch is your dad, if, if Sowell was there... Would remember the black guy in the the, yeah. the the star student black guy Marxist, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, was a Marxist back then. Yeah. yeah, that's what he was talking about. Yeah. And so uh, it just bumps me out. And I, I never asked yeah. your dad about Soul or vice versa. But I didn't know that. But that makes Soul Soul's eighty nine years old. Is he? So really? he's about the same age as your dad w- would wow. be if he yeah. was still with us. So wow, it's a little older actually. Wow. Um, moves to, moves to University of Chicago. Goes from Chicago to. Alaska before statehood or right after statehood? Right before statehood. Yeah. Tried to enlist first. They wouldn't take him. Yeah. Security threat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Swarthy, you know, formerly communist country. Um, and anyway, yeah, they moved to Alaska. They drove up. My mom and dad had three kids and another one on the way, my brother Rudy, and they went up in 49 before statehood. Dad was going to teach at the University of Alaska Fairbanks economics. 
And then um, he came up. He said the legislature didn't fund the position. It wasn't there. So he looked in the um, want ads and mm-hmm. the first job that he found, he took, he says. He was a milkman, but he had also been a milkman in Chicago right. while he was in grad school. So I'm not sure how, you know. I mean, if this is the accurate that is. If this is the point of embellishment in the story, <laughs> you know, the refugee ship, you were in Chicago, yeah. swimming the Danube, but well, he, he actually looked of, for the milkman job. He was a man of few words, as you know. Yes, he was. He, he very much was. He did not talk a lot. Um, yeah, so then he did that and he um, started, bought a little store, bought another store, you know, and he became a, a really successful guy um, in Fairbanks and then expanded uh, grocery stores retail and wholesale grocery across the state of Alaska. And then, you know, the oil crash happened and that hurt our state badly. He had to retrench. But he was very successful. He was a real true American success story. He was. He was one of the most impressive people I've ever met. Um, And so was your mom, to be honest. Oh, my goodness. Your mom. uh, What she did. Yeah. I mean, nine kids in a place like Fairbanks when you're – Dad's working six and a half days yeah. a week is yeah. pretty impressive too. Um, and um, it's funny whenever the subject of pro life stuff comes up or abortion stuff comes up, and everyone wants to sort of reify it into this ideological context about rights or privileges or whatever. And I just, for some reason, I always think of your mom holding a baby. Because she just would light up whenever she held a baby, <laughs> yeah. and like she just loved babies, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and her pro lifeness came out from Catholicism, and just loved babies. Yeah. And the idea that it was like some Handmaid's Tale agenda or any yeah, of that exactly. kind of crap no, is just so nonsense. She just yeah. loved babies. Yeah. Um, all right. So anyway, uh, the part, the thing that everybody really wants to hear about <laughs> is your epic, world historic confrontation. On Don't say it, Jonah. Oh, my God. Not the Sarah Palin thing. On the basketball court with Sarah Palin. I, you know. <laughs> you played basketball against Sarah Palin? I did. I did. We, 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 she was in Wasilla, famously, and we were in Fairbanks, but we had, we played against each other. I, you, you took know, planes to weigh games every now and then, right? Sometimes. Well, only to the towns you couldn't get to. By driving, right. actually, we would take a bus down to Wasilla. But to go to Ketchikan, you know, in Juneau, you had to you had to fly. So we would do that sometimes. But you know, I, she was a she was a point guard, and I was a center. So did we interact much? I can't say that with certainty. I know I slept on the floor of their gym, and we played we played basketball against each other. The reason why this is funny. So when when that boom, that sonic boom of Sarah Palin being picked for. Uh, VP, uh, word got out, I think probably in part because I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I told everybody. And and our friend Richard Starr, formerly of the – then of the Weekly Standard. Yes. Reached out to you and asked you – wanted something like two or 3,000 words on what you learned about Sarah Palin <laughs> playing basketball against her. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not sure. He, I think he reached out to me because he knew me and I he knew I was an Alaskan. Um, I don't know about the – basketball thing maybe maybe it it was known then we were driving back i I, kind of remember it came up because i then i really annoyed you for hours in the car with all sorts of things you could write about how i could tell by the way she moved the ball down the court (laughs) that she'd be unstoppable on (laughs) entitlement reform you know (laughs) yeah no um it's become one of the most famous 
so to speak, things that I've written and people just it comes back to me all the time, which is kind of unfortunate. The piece I, you I, actually ended up writing, which wasn't specifically on the basketball stuff. Yeah, I wrote about her. I, you know, Kate O'Byrne, the late, great Kate, um, I remember at first said, you know, I think there's a lot of projecting going on with Sarah Palin. Yeah. And was she right, you know? Yeah. Um, and I and I did at the time. I, I just saw the, the reaction she received, especially from feminists. Oh, my God, the women went insane, which meant they were scared yeah. to death. And uh, so I wrote a piece about, you know, kind of her, more her potential. Mm-hmm. And she had been a great governor. And she had yeah, been, she was. you know, a good governor for Alaska, you know, trying to wean us off our addiction to oil and oil revenue and – she was she was a, an impressive governor, but my favorite line was from a theology professor at University of Chicago, and it wrote in Newsweek. I'm pretty sure she said Sarah Palin's greatest hypocrisy was her pretense that she's a woman, yeah. Um, yeah. which I just love that kind of yeah. nonsense. Um, so, on Alaska, you think Alaska? Do you think Alaska is a libertarian welfare state? Oh man, um, that's right. You can't get in trouble now. My you know, my dad thought that um, in important aspects. Um, you know, look, part of it is is not our fault. The government created the the um, timber communities in southeast Alaska. Um, you know, they moved people there purposefully and um, created these communities. And then, you know, Congress comes along and restricts cutting in those areas. And so there's some of there's a lot of that stuff going on. Over 90% of the lands in in Alaska are held by the federal government or by the native corporations. They're off limits to to most um private individuals. So It's only like 1 or 2% of the land is actually owned by private Yeah, citizens. it's it's yeah. really it's really small. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of feeling by Alaskans that is legitimate that they came along later and the country decided to make Alaska into its national park and um, it, it restricts them. So there's got to be a price of wilderness, we used to say. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a price that somebody pays for putting all this um, – all these resources and all this land off limits. Um, OK. So we should we should fast forward a little bit. I'm not sure if we should tell the full story of how we met. Um, you should tell it. It's a fabulous Washington story. I mean I really – it's the quintessential. Okay. Um, so I apologize to Jack who's heard this story a few times. Um, but um, so I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal, oddly – ironically enough about how stupid the fad for cigars was or at least in part the fad for cigars was in Washington. And got to remember in early 1990s Washington, the contract with America, the Newt Gingrich Congress – Brought in these waves of arrogant asininity among young conservatives who all want, all thought they were going to be like PJ O'Rourke if they wore what he wore, or dressed, you know, or 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 um, Tom Wolfe or whatever. You know, there's all this stuff about conservative or people who decided they were conservatives. I mean, I don't think. Yeah, and there's all this sort of like, uh, you know, uh, Kent Brockman hail ants. I, <laughs> I for one can help in their sugar caves kind of thing where. All these people who weren't really conservatives, but just because conservatism seemed or Republicans were in control for the first time in 40 years, seemed hip and cool and they were just going to get on board. And so it was a lot of faddishness and, and stuff going on. And so I wrote a piece criticizing all of that. Jess, you're at the time an editor, the editor of Philanthropy Magazine? Yeah. 
It was a the magazine of the Philanthropy Roundtable. And which was on the same floor as the Weekly Standard back then. Yes. And uh, you told our mutual friend Ken Weinstein how much you liked this op-ed that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And Ken's like, oh, I know that guy because Ken was – I knew Ken through our friend Tevi Troy who gets mentioned around here every now and then because he's just so drop-dead sexy. And um, uh, and about three weeks later, Kenny introduces us and I instantly recognized you as the hot girl from the elevator because I worked in the same building. We worked in the same building for a long time in fact and you – Instantly did not recognize me as <laughs> random dude number 27. And, um, JG, we met at the party at a no left turn party. I know. I'm yeah. saying, we got introduced at the party. Can yeah. you introduce us at that party? But I instantly recognized you from the elevator. Okay. I knew you as the sort of Jennifer Connolly Mankay from the elevator. And, um, I was smitten, but we were romantically engaged with other people at the time. And, um, not engaged, not engaged, involved. engaged, yeah. uh, involved. Um, and uh, – but I was definitely smitten, charmed, we, and we had a great conversation and it might have ended there. I don't think so, but it might have ended there save for the fact that um, – and Ken, Ken Weinstein, now the president of the Hudson Institute, uh, disputes this. But Kenny is uh, in this narrow regard what social scientists call a liar. Um, Kenny, uh, I would argue in part because – of who you were romantically no, involved No, Kenny with. did not like him. Okay. No, that's wrong. Okay. So we'll just leave it there. But um, so Kenny hears that um, I'm somewhat smitten with you and calls me – never called me. I've never – I'd never talked to him on the phone before or since. <laughs> um, calls me out of the blue and says, hey, Jonah, how's it going? We talked for a while, right? And it's it's kind of weird to hear Kenny speaking in whole sentences, not mumbled, because that's sort of his normal yes. mode. And and then Ken says, "Oh yeah, so I hear you like Jessica." And I was like, "Yeah, I thought she was great. She was just great." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's she's fantastic. I love Jessica. I love Jessica. Uh, but you should just know she's way out of your league." <laughs> and um, this aroused in me a sense of masculine pride and and rage the likes of which in generations past whole continents were laid waste to and uh so and you I, started calling me i started calling you i've never met a dude that talked on the phone as much as you i couldn't believe it and you know i don't do it now i just I was doing it for you <laughs> i i set about on a quest to you would woo call you. for no reason just to chat yeah because i like chatting with for, you you were Five floors up or whatever. Well, I, I came by sometimes too. Yes. <laughs> well, you know. Hey, it look. was just weird. I'd never known a guy that could talk on the phone like you. Yeah, but hey, guess what? It worked. <laughs> <laughs> I have a daughter to prove it. <laughs> All right, so we should fast forward to actually some real stuff. Um, uh, after we met, but before we married, you wrote the first, and correct me if I'm wrong, st- at least until Christina Hoff Summers' book, the only book calling attention to the downside of Title yeah, IX. The only critical treatment of Title IX, Tilting the Playing Field. Yeah. A book um, that is, I think, I don't know, it's, it's probably out of print, but it was, at, yeah, 2002 it came out. I was finishing it just as we were getting ready to get married. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm very proud of that book. It um, It's had some 
bad subsequent consequences for me in terms of, you know, making me kind of too radioactive for some parts even of the right, which was disconcerting. But um, it's, a, you know, it's a lot with a big downside. Everybody is kind of aware of – I predicted in the book that – which was mostly about sports – that Title IX would go on to ravage other parts of the academy and sure enough, you know – And everyone said you were crazy. Yeah, and everyone said I was crazy and the sexual harassment, sexual assault – um, regulations promulgated under the Obama administration were just horrendous and were, you know, heroically reversed by Betsy DeVos. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I think it was before its time. Um, and uh, I'm very proud of the book. It was the only book I've ever written under my own name under because you. it's um, it's crazy to do that, John. Yeah. Um, so this was also around the time I- – that chronology is, feels weird to me because at some point you left the Independent Women's Forum to be the policy director for Lamar! Exclamation point. Yeah, that was before all this. Okay, because I had to go to Tennessee for wooing purposes yes. quite a bit, um, which was complicated. And so then uh, we got married. It was lovely. In 2001. We were married in the San Juan Islands where your oldest sister, Alex, has this amazing house and we had the wedding there. It was sort of a destination wedding in the sense that – it was sort of a compromise wedding in the sense that um, as weird as it may sound to people, Friday Harbor in Washington State is kind of halfway between Fairbanks and D.C. Or the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, And um, still would say it was one of the most fun – Weddings I've ever been to. And um, then we went on a lovely honeymoon. Great adventure. Um, And I, since we brought Cosmo the Wonder Dog, um, who was, who's the dog in my Twitter picture. Not on our honeymoon. Not on the honeymoon. We brought him to the wedding. To the wedding. Yeah. My mother was like, if that dog is in your wedding, I'm not coming. Yeah. 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 That was our relationship with Cosmo. We liked him a lot. Yeah. Um, I drove Cosmo out with my buddy, Doug Anderson, who was one of my groomsmen and left my car or our car and, um, Cosmo with your sister. We went to Europe, had a lovely honeymoon. You flew back to DC. Cause I had to go to work. I was working at the justice department. That's right. You were writing speeches for the attorney general. Right. So you were the attorney general's, uh, chief speechwriter and senior policy advisor and his only speechwriter. That's right. And then um, one day after we're back, I'm in Oregon to drive Cosmo home. I'm like driving Cosmo home, and 9/11 happens. Yes. So explain what it was like working for Ashcroft on 9/11. Well, it was weird because I was literally in the subway when the planes hit the towers. You called me to tell me. Um, I told a lot of people that, that it had. I was up so early on the um, West Coast. Yeah, it was that was bizarre. I look and I loved uh, John Ashcroft is a different guy. Um, he had had a really tough confirmation for those of you who remember back in that day as Bush's, um, attorney general. And that job was looking like, so he was kind of, he was kind of neutered, you know? I mean, Bush didn't want him to make any more trouble and he didn't want to make any more trouble. So before 9-11, the job was a lot of, you know, not very interesting. And I was kind of thinking, wow, this is a lot of work. I was the only speechwriter, but just kind of a lot of boring stuff. And then that happened and it transformed that job. And I think we did some really 
wonderful things. He was controversial. Um, he took a lot of incoming for the president, and he did it um, without, at least to my knowledge, complaining. Um, didn't He never complained around us. But 9-11 was just – it was epic. He disappeared for like two weeks into a secret room, like a little – War room in the FBI. Drunken stupor kind of thing? No. <laughs> um, they were, you know, they were worried that there were more attacks to come. That was the instant worry. They knew that bin Laden could do that. And so, um, and Robert Mueller was the FBI director, the brand new FBI director back then. And they had a little war room in there. I think it's called the SIAC. Um, it stands for something. Anyway, special room. We didn't see him for, for two weeks. After the attacks, but it changed everything about our agenda. Um, we were counterterrorism, you know, from day one. We were trying to beat down the idea that this, these were criminal offenses and to kind of say that this was more, you know, we were on a wartime footing and that we had to be proactive and not just prosecute these crimes after they occurred. So it was, it was controversial. Yeah. So a couple fill in the blank things. One, I remember you – so my recollection – I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my recollection is is that you wouldn't necessarily want to go on a road trip with John Ashcroft, but uh, – like a buddy movie kind of thing, <laughs> but that you actually respected him a lot. I really did and I do to this day. Um, you know, like I said, he was a little different. He made um, barbed wire art mm -hmm. and gave it to his uh, counterparts across the world. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really interesting. He would he had a an organ in his office at Justice, and he would play it mm -hmm. in between meetings. So you would come in, and he would be playing it sometimes. And he like would, Phantom of the Opera kind <laughs> of thing. Or? Yeah, no, I mean I can't remember. It was a smaller organ, Gigi. And um, and then he would take his shoes off. It's not the meetings. size of the organ. <laughs> Sorry, go on. He would take his shoes off while we were all sitting around his office and, and make a little pyramid with them in the middle of the room. I mean, he was a different guy, but he, you know, he was not on anybody's payroll. He was an honest guy. He um, didn't put up with, you know, grandstanding, creepy employees. He appreciated hard work. He was very appreciative of me, mm -hmm. although he used to tell me, you know, that what a crummy job I had because, you know, I was the end of the line. I had to produce this product and had to get a lot of people to cooperate with me um, who didn't have any accountability. But he was always very appreciative of Yeah, so but this this raises one of my great grievances about that time when you were at DOJ is that normally chief speechwriter is like this classic Washington sinecure job where you run a shop, right, of other speechwriters. And I, mean, I think that the, the Secretary of Agriculture historically has like six speechwriters, yes. right? And Ashcroft, who was uh, no was was renowned for his thriftiness, with careful the with money, yeah, the taxpayers' money, got rid of his chef, right? That's right. There was no food at the Justice Department. Provided you guys with all the tap water you could drink, <laughs> and and we and so when we when you originally got tapped to be chief speechwriter, we thought, oh, this is great. You know, you can. Build up a little shop kind of yeah. thing. And then it turned out, no, 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 chief meant sole speechwriter yeah. for most of yeah. it. And then, I mean, later you got some, a little help, but like the head of the FBI asked you to work on speeches and you had to say no, right? Which is not yeah. great. Well, uh, Mueller actually asked me to work on his um, confirmation testimony, which 
because I had written some stuff for Ashcroft that he'd done over at the FBI. And this, again, was before 9-11. He came on, you know, weeks or days before these attacks. And and I was, you know, I was happy to do that. But, yeah, I mean, the first year that I was there, it was just me. And it was it was a lot of work. And then I got some help. Jonathan Last, mm-hmm. now wife. Um, Shannon was a great um, assistant helper, uh, speechwriter back in those days. But um, it was a lot of work. And at the time, I remember just being, you know, complaining about that a lot. But you don't realize, you know, when you're living it, really, it was history, you know, kind of in the making. And I look back on it with a lot of fondness now. So I'm still convinced that I don't want to whack, get too Jack butlery here, but... Jack doesn't seem happy, Jonah. He never does. Um, I mean, this is this is he's a lot like Cosmo, like this. He just always looks grumpy, but that's his. Is act, he really? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not just this conversation. He is he is r- resting dyspeptic face, <laughs> and um, uh, like when Jack first came on board, and I told him I'd been to Bohemian Grove. Jack has a bit of a conspiracy theory thing, you know, weakness for conspiracy theories, but the good ones, not the ones that you usually hear about. And when I told him that there really wasn't that much, I could tell him he was very suspicious, and I am convinced that you still know some really cool stuff <laughs> from when you were working for Ashcroft and you just won't tell me. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, there wasn't too much of that, Joan. I, I, I was working with public things by nature of my job. So, um, but there were some things. I mean, you know, I, I saw a little bit. I had a security clearance and I saw a little bit of stuff, but not really great stuff. I remember thinking we talked a lot about how if there was another attack and there was an attack on Washington, that hopefully, you know, we might have a little heads up, a little heads up. Yeah. Because, yeah, the traffic would quickly become bad around here. And this is something for listeners that Jess and I talk about a great deal is great our, deal. Our, our evac plans. Like, how do we get the cats? How do we get the dogs? How do we get the kid? You know, it sounds like the um, story from the Passover Haggadah. But, um, <laughs> Um, all right, so we're we're spending too much time on your resume, but I just think yeah, really, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, then, because of the demands of motherhood, among other things, you worked from home for yes, almost a decade or, or more than a decade. Wow. I can't even, I can't yeah. even keep it straight. Um, and in that time, you were a ghostwriter. Can I, I don't I don't know who you're allowed to reveal you've been a ghostwriter for, so you can well, list the names that you want to say you were a ghostwriter. For. We say collaborators. Um, and is that what the guild position is? Is that you guys say collaborators? <laughs> yeah, and I think I mean I think speechwriters and ghostwriters should be, you know, a little more discreet than they a lot of them are. But yeah, I I. I but you're I, in the acknowledgements. I'm in the, the acknowledgements. I I worked. The first book was with um, the Young Guns, right? Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, and Kevin McCarthy, uh-huh. when they all still had jobs in Washington. And um, they were leading – And full of promise. They were in the house and full of promise and young and, and yeah. And so I worked on that and I got to know Paul Ryan um, during that process who I really liked and respected. Um, and uh, then I worked with – who was next? I did do a book with Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with uh, Marco Rubio with Carly Fiorina. I did a book titled – Jen Brewer? Yes, Scorpions for Breakfast, uh-huh. about immigration with the then governor of Arizona, Jan Brewer, and then my first, uh, then my first, first time I worked with Nikki Haley, I worked on her memoir, um, 
this is how I got to know her. And that was my – I liked that book. Right. So for listeners who don't know, when Nikki Haley joined the administration, you became her speechwriter at the – At the United Nations, United. yes. And um, and you're still working with Nikki, collaborating with Nikki these days. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She's out of government and, um, you know, she's working on a book. She's announced that. So we're working on that pretty feverishly right now. Um, well, we appreciate you taking your time out to do this. Of course. Um, and um, we also appreciate Donors Trust, this week's advertiser. Um, there's been a question going around about whether donor-advised funds are safe for conservatives. It's true that some of the bigger national donor-advised funds don't always share the values of conservatives and libertarians and others, other lovers of liberty, including many, but not all, remnant listeners. But donor-advised funds are still a terrific tool for your charitable giving. You need the right partner. That's why there's Donors Trust. You've heard me talk about Donors Trust before. Donors Trust is unique among donor-advised funds because it was built with you in mind. Someone who believes that limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise are bedrock values worth fighting for. If you aren't familiar with donor-advised funds, you can think of it as your personal charitable savings account. It's a great tool for maximizing your charitable tax benefits while offering a simpler way to give. Donors Trust is more than a way to give. It's a partner that understands your values and works with charitable givers of all sizes across the country. The team from Donors Trust will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. See if a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust is right for you. Remnant listeners can receive their free prospectus at DonorsTrust.org slash dingo. Do your charitable giving the smart way with a partner that shares your values. Donors Trust. Learn more at DonorsTrust.org slash dingo. Okay, so we'll skip the biography stuff now. I mean, we not skip, but we'll yeah. fall on into it. So, um, um, but one thing people like, so like when you're ghost, sorry, collaborating with politicians, um, and I know you take it very seriously about keeping confidential things confidential. So I'll just ask it as a generic question. How many of them actually do the writing or do serious writing? Uh, that's... Serious writing. Uh-huh. Nikki does a lot of writing, um, but some of them collaborate more than others. <laughs> uh, and you know, I mean, a lot of these books, which I kind of am done writing, are these. I want to run for higher office, so I have to have a book. Book, mm-hmm. not very interesting. Um, I try to do a great job obviously every time and they're always well written like in the way that you know they try to demean your doctoral thesis by saying mm-hmm. they're well written <laughs> uh, and they are but um, sometimes not terribly interesting um, but yeah it, it really depends upon the person that you're working with um, so it's funny because we meet lots of people like think you know and they're like, oh you're both writers and and I, we both struggle to explain how yeah. we do. Yes, we both put words on screens or paper or whatever, but we do very different things. Yes. And I could not do in a sustained way what you do. Do you? So writing in somebody else's voice, um, writing in somebody else's head. That's one of the reasons. I mean, it's a true story. I've told you this before. I, I gave up being a television producer. Because I hate – I just – writing in somebody else's voice 
um, you know, for a person who's going to say what I want them to say on a screen, you know, Wattenberg or the host of documentaries and whatnot, I hated it. It just felt it felt incredibly forced to me. But you do it for a living. What, what, what's wrong with you? Well, you know, <laughs> JJ, you have to swallow some of your ego, right? You do have to. You're saying be... my ego is too large to <laughs> swallow. <laughs> you have to be happy being the guy behind the guy. Um, for me. It's, you know, it's the right thing to do. I make more money doing it. I couldn't do what you do. And uh, in the same way that we talk about politics all the time at home, we talk about our different jobs. I ask you for advice a lot. You ask me sometimes. And yeah, so you, but you rarely can give me usable stuff because it's stuff that most politicians wouldn't say, which is a problem. <laughs> You know, I mean. Well, but shame on politicians. Yeah, They're well, not exactly. willing to make dead hooker jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Huey Long would make a dead hooker joke from time to time. But so this is funny. I often will have you look at my stuff. Like if I'm if I just if I'm just trying to pull a column out and I can't get it out, I'll have you proof it for me and get your feedback. Um, I got to say, I do it less these days because I can make Jack do it. But um, you've never once in 20 years given me something to read that you've written. Why is that? I, insecure. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm insecure. Um, and also, I just, again, I have to have... I don't know anybody you, in the world who thinks you're insecure. You do not have the sensibility that is required for this work. Okay? Ghostwriting. You don't. You always and, – and I am confined by what these people want. And again, most of them are thinking about running for higher office. Yeah. So they don't want to say anything that's going to piss anybody off. And it's very frustrating for me. Mm -hmm. You know? But look, in the end, the, they're their books. You know, I can't – I can't – I can dictate the content to a certain point but not beyond that. So – yeah, a lot of times you just would want to make it too interesting. <laughs> I'll take it. So I don't I and will no one will ever hear this if it turns out I can't ask this. Uh but um what was it like working for Nikki at the UN? Oh, wow. I mean, I this was my first day job, you know, back in the office uh -huh. since um Lucy was born and I didn't really want to go back in the office, but it ended up being really fantastic. Um, I think the best job I've ever had. We were just a small band of kind of rebels mm -hmm. inside the State Department. I worked in Washington, D.C. at the State Department offices, uh, U.N. offices at the State Department. and um, A home, a famous home for vibrant, creative. Exactly. Uh -huh. Well, you know, it turns out my boss told me. Um, how he came into his office, we, you know, and the, and the the Obama people, Samantha Power people, really left the place in a shambles. There was like classified material, you know, hmm. sitting around, and these are pretty highly secured offices. One of which is a couple of which are a skiffs, mm -hmm. um, where you can't bring your phone and all this stuff. And there's there, you know, they take the security protocol very seriously, um, which is kind of ironic. Um, Considering the previous administration, and maybe it was a new thing, but um, that John came into his office, my the deputy um, uh, 
to Nikki, and the walls were covered with um, maps of Israeli settlements. Really? Yeah. They were clearly – That's what um, they cared about. Yeah, that's what they cared about. Anyway, um, so Nikki was – you know, I mean, listen, Rex Tillerson was a pretty absent secretary of state. Um, So we had a lot of running room and she used it um, for a long time there and did a lot of stuff and it was, um, I thought, important work and um, really, really fun too. Um, We didn't have – didn't particularly – we said we're sorry. We didn't ask for permission kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Did a lot of that and she's very aggressive and very principled. And um, for the most part, I would write stuff for her that I expected to get to come back to me saying it was too much. And most of the time it wasn't. Some of the times it was. Just when you say it was too much, is it fair to say that you come from the um, neocon tradition <laughs> of, of foreign policy stuff? Yeah, I guess I guess that's how I would put myself. I, I, I believe in a princ- uh, uh, an aggressive and principled U.S. foreign policy. I think we can – we make the world generally better where we go and where we act. But you're not a bomb before breakfast. No, 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 no. Where we act in defense of our values. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, yeah, I'm a neocon. If As defined by that, right? Because we have these – well, you guys, you have these debates. I mean, to me, I went to, when I was going to grad school. I was reading Irving Kristol and everybody, and falling in love with it, and mm. realized, you know, it, in foreign policy, it was very clear to me what a neoconservative. Yeah, so was. you're more of the. We don't have to get into the weeds on this, but yeah. I, 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 I can dragoon Continetti back in here and do twenty five minutes on the. Oh my gosh! Yeah, different strands on this stuff. So. So switching gears um, yet again, people need to know, you know, this is a classic example of how video is deceptive, right? Um, It's sort of like the drunk who looks for his car keys where the light is good. Because I post videos of Pippa and Zoe, our dogs, people have got the misperception that I'm the one who mostly takes them out or that I take them out more than you do. And the reality is, is that you just don't yeah, bring I don't your record camera it. when yeah. you do it. But you take them on epic week, particularly on the weekend. Yes. Epic two, sometimes three hour yes. hikes and whatnot. We do. We go, we went out to um, Great Falls out in, um, I guess it's in Maryland, near Washington here last week and just had a fantastic hike. We usually are trying to find water for Pippa. Mm-hmm. And always in search of clean or semi-clean water. Yeah, which is hard around, around here. here. Yeah. I mean, everyone's seen Pippa in mud puddles. She'll get into anything. So I try to get her near cleaner water, but it's fantastic. I mean, it's but so as listeners should have figured out by now. You know, Jess and I are dog people. Um, you grew up with dogs, but you didn't like, have to do anything with them. Yeah, yeah. You basically didn't use a leash until ever. <laughs> yeah. We never had a leash. Yeah. And I grew up with dogs, but you had to have a leash because, first of all, it was New York City. And second of all, the most important dog of my life before Cosmo was Norman the Basset. And First time I saw you cry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
we were dating at a time and I got the news that Norman died and it hit me really hard. Yeah. And then we went and saw Goodwill Hunting. Which <laughs> Is that did what not, we saw? Yeah, which did not help. <laughs> um, um, whatever you think about the movie, if, you're, if your beloved Bassin Hound had just died and then you go see Goodwill Hunting uh, and you don't cry, you're a monster. Um, and... Uh, um, and you can't have a basset hound off leash because a basset yeah. hound will just follow its nose to Cleveland. But we both subscribe to the view that almost all behavioral problems, not all, almost all behavioral problems with dogs are solved with exercise, right? Yeah. That's the one thing the dog whisperer guy That's gets, right. right. That's what his prescription always was. Right. Because that's what it is. I mean, if they're chewing up your house, they're bored and, they're, right. and they have extra energy. Um, I just, I mean, I know, listen, we're crazy about the amount of time we spend with these dogs and we choose to do it. And I get a lot of joy from it. And most people can't do that. But, you know, we've talked about this too. If when I, you know, my ship comes in, I'm going to open up some sort of dog nonprofit to try to educate people about different kinds of dogs and what kind of dog you should have Yeah. in an apartment. In you know New York City, yeah. and what kind you shouldn't because it breaks my heart sometimes. Yeah, the, the bans on pit bulls I think are less defensible than a ban on border collies in, exactly. in cities would be. Exactly. I mean, you can exercise. Most dogs you can just exercise, exercise with physical exercise. If you don't mentally exercise a border collie, yep, it's going to hack your password and get into your bank account <laughs> and like buy. Empty, use all your savings for dog toys. Yeah. You know. Um, no, Cosmo fun. taught us this. I mean, yeah. the only time he started when he he had many surgeries, poor Cos. He was almost bionic. Yeah. His first one, though, is he couldn't do a lot of his stuff. He had a big cast. And this one he started, the only time he started chewing on the carpet, yeah. pulling out individual threads of the carpet. <laughs> um, yeah, because he was, he was bored. And that's so... So we should explain because people we don't hear much about Cosmo anymore. But Cosmo, we got from the New York Humane, New York Avenue yeah. uh, Humane Society in D.C., which is not in a great area. And for some bizarre reason, it was just obvious to us that he's the guy. Um, yeah, more to you. Um, I mean, you picked him out. I was. Yeah, but it was sort of like with Gracie. It was just like there's something about this dog yeah, that was yeah. special, and he was the bestest boy. Yeah. Um, we lived in Adams Morgan. We did not need a leash with him in Adams. You could cross. Yeah. You at- could go anywhere with that dog. Yeah. Through this through this city, and he listened. And he, a couple times, I had to when he was young. I had to maybe twice discipline him for running across the street to get to the park before me. Yeah. And he never did it again. He was really a remarkable dog. You taught him almost the full suite of cliched dog tricks in a week. <laughs> Oh, sit, fetch, in, all that stuff. In a day. I yeah. mean, there's some things he just refused to do. He yeah. knew, like the like the rollover thing. Yeah. And he didn't want to roll over. He knew what we were trying to get him to do. Although, so a year after we got married, we flew Cosmo to- um, Alaska. To Alaska. He did not like it. And- Well, you drove him to Minneapolis because we knew that if it were too hot, the airlines would not- right put the dog on the plane and we had to go and how could we like oh okay well we won't go to alaska because it's too hot right so we had to find a place where we knew the weather would cooperate so you drove him to minneapolis (laughs) so we could go to alaska it was stressful and um so we went up to alaska kazi gets off the plane that's a long flight and even for minneapolis yeah. and they finally let him out of his little kennel thing and he just starts first it's a lot like the scene – sorry, Jess. I know this makes you regret marrying me. 
it's a lot like the scene in Amok Time in Star Trek where Spock thinks that he killed Kirk and then Kirk shows up and at first he can't contain his glee and then he gets kind of mad at being fooled. Like Kazi gets off the plane and at first he's like yelling at us, like, why did you do that? Very much like Zoe does. And then he's so ecstatic to see us when we get outside that he agrees to roll over. Yes. Which, like, we, everyone else was like, oh, that's just a dog rolling over. Like, Kazi did not roll yeah. over. Yeah. But he was like, okay, don't, just don't do it. that again. Yeah, <laughs> did it spontaneously. Like, please don't do that to me again. Yeah. And we didn't because we drove him back from that's Alaska. That's right. Yeah. My dad gave us two-door keepers. What would it Caddy. have been? Maybe 95, 96 Caddy. Yeah. One of the last significant-sized ones. Yeah. And we loaded into that and drove from Fairbanks, Alaska. Started, we went north. We went north from Fairbanks. Yeah. To uh, what? Is it chicken? No. Damn it. Uh, something, Dawson City? Dawson. Yeah, maybe Dawson City. I can't remember. But we, we wanted to cross over the highest border crossing in North yeah. America. And so you have to go north from Fairbanks. Yeah, yeah. And remember how – so like – so one of my favorite moments was – so again, you know, Jess is a uh, Alaskan, and um, we go. Remember this um, this sort of alpine, kitschy alpine hotel village thing that was at Munch Muncho Lake. Was in it near Muncho Lake? Yeah, Muncho Lake itself was awesome. It's fantastic. Yeah, um, but we go there, and I had to watch some speech for a column or a press conference or something. And you go in and ask them, do they have a TV anywhere? And their whole shtick there is like, this is like, you know. Rustic. Rustic and all this kind of stuff. And the lady says to you, ma'am, this is the North Country. We don't have TVs here. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I was born 400 miles north of here. (laughs) We have 200 channels. Um, No, but that was a a fantastic um, trip. What you should put in the show notes, Jack is Jonah's account of getting pulled over oh, yeah. by the police. We were in one of the Dakotas. Must have been- We had just crossed over from Wyoming to South Dakota, I think. I yeah. think. And we were in this two-door Cadillac with an extra tire and a white dog in the back seat. We'd been driving at that point for a week at we, least. We looked like meth cooks. Yes. Yeah. I was pregnant and nodding off in the front seat, and this cop pulled us over. And he made me get in his cruiser. That's right. And it was a very strange conversation. And I kept trying to like, drop these hints that despite how sketchy we look, um, he shouldn't worry about us too much because, like, my wife works for the Attorney General of the United <laughs> States, which seemed like a weird lie for, like, a normal sketchy dude to come up with. You know, uh, had, I, I had DCID. You had DCID. And you would think that most sort of skeeves and skells who are like transporting meth across state lines would come up with a more plausible lie than you know, like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a syndicated columnist and my wife is a speechwriter for the attorney general of the United States. And it was a very strange interrogation. Well, if we, if it's still findable on interweb, um, we'll put it up. No, it's um, fantastic. It's fantastic. Really you should. Um, that was one of the first weirdly viral pieces I yeah. did. So, where, how do we get – oh, we were talking about Cosmo. Cosmo on that trip got to chase Caribou, which was That's a bucket right. list thing for him. That's right. He was really psyched by that. We got a little blowback about how dogs shouldn't chase Caribou, some sort of nonsense. Yeah. So I get this a lot on 
Twitter when people hear that Zoe chases deer or chases rabbits, and and you're much more of a red and tooth and claw advocate for how dogs should live, and that it's okay for Zoe to want to kill. And that's what Zoe wants to do. You know, I, I just feel like it's wrong. We'd meet these people in the city. Remember the guy at the dog park who had this fantastic lab. And I asked him, you know, had the, has, he, has he ever been hunting? Because he was just a real athlete. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. And this guy was so offended by the idea that he will go hunting. Well, you know what? He had a hunting dog. Yeah. And that's what that dog wanted to do above all things. Now, bat, you know, tennis balls will substitute some. But those dogs want to get into water. And that's what they're bred to do. Um, so that's – and that's definitely what Zoe – Wants to do. Yeah. I mean, well, and Pippa wants to be on the That's all she dog. wants to do. Yeah. I'm a little Pippa again. The tennis ball is her methadone. I mean, she's fine. <laughs> but Zozo wants to kill things straight up. And she's pretty good at Tell them about uh, the, 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 probably her goriest kill was in uh, New ha- in Maine a couple summers ago. Oh my gosh, yeah. We had rented a house up right on the Maine and New Hampshire border. In Kittery. In Kittery, Maine. Fantastic. When we were up there for a, we hauled the dogs and the cats up there for a month. And Jonah ran off to a bunch of political conventions. I went to the conventions. conventions. Yeah. So I was there alone by with the dogs a lot. And we would go out on the, on the ocean. And this was the first time Zozo had seen a larger rodent. Than a squirrel. Than a squirrel, yeah. And she, there were um, groundhogs. Groundhogs there, and she <laughs> caught one one morning. Again, a really fantastic hunter, this dog. And she sat there on the beach with this groundhog, and stripped its flesh off its body piece by piece and consumed it. And it took a while. And there are other dogs on this beach, and I was so terrified. That And she wouldn't let me near her, of course. And I was so terrified another dog was going to come along and Zozo was going to just destroy them because... Back then she was very possessive. Yeah, she was protecting her groundhog. Um, But so I kind of headed off other dogs and waited for her to finish. And then she walked around for a while with the spine of this poor ex-groundhog in her mouth and the little flippers on one side and the head on the other. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty gory, but she was a pig and you know what? She really liked that. All right, so I think we've checked the box on dog stories. Which I think <laughs> it's, an, it's an important thing. Okay, so now to the, 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 the questions people have been waiting for for this entire podcast. Yeah. What is Jonah really like? How much of a burden is it being married to me? <laughs> <laughs> You only have one serious fault, Jonah, and you know what it is. You're I care slob. too much. <laughs> You're a slob. You're the most fastidious slob. He washes his hands 25 times a day, but you can't pick up his socks. That's Jonah. See, this is the content the internet wants, right? That's here. right. <laughs> his pants and his socks will they will be there in a pile where they literally came off his body. Um, this is definitely my greatest. Also, See, Jonah, the weird thing is Jack has the same complaint. <laughs> Jonah doesn't know how to live in a house. Yeah. Jonah grew up in an apartment, um, never had to kind of do anything around the apartment. And houses are a different thing. Yeah. So that's been a 
interesting thing. I remember early on when we first moved into this house and it was becoming clear and you were becoming dismayed. And (laughs) and, and in fairness, you deserve to become dismayed. And you didn't understand why I didn't self-actualize to like mow the lawn and stuff. And my view was sort of like, it's green out there. That's what it's supposed to be. And like if, if there were homeless crackheads on our front step, I would know how to shoo them away. But I never lived in a house before. It's the only house I've ever lived in. I, that, this is my point. Yeah. 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 No, it's – and men, the men in my life previous to you, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, by this I mean mostly my brothers and my, my, my dad. They knew how to do things, build stuff and fix stuff and mow the lawn and you – Sort of like Ron Burgundy. I'm a man. I take things from the earth and I sculpt them. And yeah, I, I agree. I, I live a bit more of a life of mind than than you. You blogged, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So here's the, the the traditional Gavora disdain is finally coming through. <laughs> um, no, but no, that's. I mean, that's that's easily that's your only fault. So, um, only is strong. But thank you. I appreciate that. We don't have to share everything else. And uh, so has this been as horrible as you feared it would be? No, it's actually fun. I mean, the only thing that is disconcerting is looking across the table at Jack. I know. Because he really just I know. I, I've learned, I've trained myself. It's, not to look at him? Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like you know, you have to learn from a young age not to look into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and occasionally he pulls his mic close to him and I'm expecting some kind of a barrage of... Of anger or and then, rage. And yeah. then nothing happens. Um, I've held my tongue because I didn't want to disrupt your flow. <laughs> you got it. You got me. Here I am. So, uh, all right, I'm going away now. Um, when you know, I'm work as you know, I'm working on this new thing with Steve Hayes, and I wanted to. We have this security system for the deck for it that you get. You, you need per, second party permission to to look at it, and it's controlled by this other guy. Who Do of people know what a deck is? It's, it's basically the PowerPoint presentation, yeah. right? And But I thought PowerPoints corrupted absolutely. That's that's true. And that's why I call it the deck because I don't want to like even acknowledge PowerPoint. But I want Jack to look at it. So I forwarded it to Jack and uh, he tried to use the password or whatever. And the our, our, our suit, our business guy who's doing all this stuff, I don't want to use his name, uh, saw the permission request come through and he Googled Jack and found his Twitter picture and he says, "Yeah, I'm not giving this guy permission. <laughs> he looks like a serial killer." <laughs> what What do serial killers look like? <laughs> um, you know, you know, be really kind of unsettling is if you just ask that question truly earnestly into the mirror. Just, what do serial killers look like? Anyway, um, Jack they're on my list now. He doesn't look like a serial. <laughs> he looks like he should be driving a truck in Coeur d'Alene. There's a little bit of that. Truck drivers are in demand right now. <laughs> um, there's. I am sure we're going to get inundated with questions like uh, about parenting stuff. I get that all the time. It always makes me very uncomfortable. Um, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to complain that there wasn't enough dog content. Um, yeah. Um, actually, why don't you just tell about bringing Pippa home? from alaska because she's a we, yeah. we feel good we believe in rescues in a big way yeah but pippa's kind of a rescue and kind of not yeah she pippa's an english springer spaniel she's an english springer spaniel and she was kind of like a gift my mother lost her long time lumpy 
fat yellow lab named Maggie, who was a sweetie. She was a great girl. She um, started to dress up um, in the end there. I mean, not dress up, gave her winter clothes, which she ended up liking. We never had a dog that wore a stinking sweater or anything like that. And we were in Alaska, you know, I mean, peep dogs. But anyway, um, she ended up liking her sweaters. But so, but Maggie passed away and my brother got um, my mom, Pippa. And uh, Pippa, who is the the most high energy dog I have ever known yes. in my life. And my parents were elderly and they could not take care of Pippa. And um, And she's also a lap dog. And, you know, they didn't really just bond with her um, the way they needed to. They would, they would just never let a dog in their lap. My father thought dogs should do jobs. Yeah. You know? And um, anyway, so I said, listen, I will take Pippa. And they, they were wintering in Hawaii at the time. And he, my dad was like, okay, while we're in Hawaii, and they put her on a plane on Alaska Airlines in Fairbanks. And then I had to pick her up at um, Reagan National mm. Airport in a cage. And Pippa, you know, she's not a brain surgeon. I don't think that she suffered any mental. She's a weird dog. She's a, yeah. She's a special girl. She's special. <laughs> but I had to pick her up and then I had to take her. We were, our biggest deal was what? How are we going to introduce her to Zoe? Yeah, and that didn't work out too well. Yeah, I took her to the park and thought it was a neutral place. And Zozo was just not having any of it. Yeah. And the thing is, Zoe is so smart and but so jealous Yeah, that when you showed affection for Pippa, we, we kind of thought that this was, oh, we're signaling that she's part of the family. And Zoe's reaction was, I must kill her. <laughs> and for the first, was it six weeks, two months? Yeah, maybe not that long, but. Zoe tried to. Yeah. Often it tried was, to kill Pippa. It was and dicey. It was among the most stressful times of my life. And I still think that the breaking point that convinced Zoe that maybe I won't get away with killing her is when we thought things were getting better and then Zoe attacked Pippa in the backyard when I was working back there and I lost my temper and I don't lose the temper with the dogs much. And I grabbed Zoe and I threw her down on the ground and put my knee on her neck and yeah. really scared her. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I guess I'm not the alpha here. I can't kill Pippa. Zoe, who does not respond to tra- traditional forms of you know, discipline. Right. She just doesn't. She's very hierarchical. Like you got to feed her first. Some people were saying – some websites were like you have to let her go in the door first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you have to convince her of her position and she's gotten, you know, a lot better. But she she doesn't respond to getting yelled at. And, yeah, yeah. I think physically abusing – I mean like I, – and I don't I, – I hate the idea of hurting dogs or hitting dogs. But yeah. it just like it was necessary. And now they do they do love each other. I mean they don't understand each other in a weird way but they do – I think love each other. Yeah, love. Love. Uh, uh, it's more than tolerate. I mean, I don't know that Zozo would come to Pippa's defense. Defense. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't. I also don't know if Zoe would come to our defense. <laughs> <laughs> At least my defense. <laughs> anyway, my beloved. <laughs> well, this was fun. I'm glad. And, 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 and so I wanted to ask you that because we're going to get all sorts of questions in. About what I didn't ask you or why didn't you explore this or something about Sarah Palin or, you know, uh, wh- no mention of Ralph or Gracie. You know, there are all sorts of things that are going to come in. 
And if you'd be willing to come back uh, after a suitable period of time, we'd love to have you back. Well, if people have actual questions and aren't just being, you know, polite. Because this is a very different kind of a conversation. Yeah, we and never know... talk like this at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk. We haven't looked each other in the eye in 10 years. <laughs> no, for the remnant. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's a different kind of conversation. Maybe it'll go over. Well, according to some math, this is the 100th episode. You know, there's a... I thought that was the sole episode. Well, under conventional math, it's the, that was the Because of episode 11? Because of, yeah, which, oh. you know, we're not allowed to talk about. I know. So, all right, well, Jessica Gavora... Thank you very much for coming on The Revenant. Oh, and also thank you very much for marrying me. <laughs> You're welcome, JG. <laughs> this eagle's place is in the sky. She's still got a lot of flying to do. You can see it in her eye Though she's cried a bit for what we've put her through She soared above the lifted lamp That guards sweet freedom's door In the dews, the damps, the watchfires Of a nation torn by war Oh, she's far too young to die You can see it in her eye, she's not yet begun to fly. It's time to let the mighty eagle soar once more. Let the eagle soar. And where should I go to sip my fresco like this? Um, if you do that, you're much more courteous than he is. <laughs> <laughs> Go, 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 go.